kid. Sean, are you ready? Yes, sir. Let's play ball. So the Chicago Cubs hired you to do mats with their athletes. So can you tell me what mats is? And so MAT, you know, you said mat, MAT, muscle activation technique. Yeah, that's um, it's a it's a it's an offshoot of applied and I'm sorry, it's a, an offshoot of applied and clinical kinesiology, and uh, muscle activation techniques basically is viewing restrictions in range of motion as evidence of agonist insufficiency. And what that means is if the elbow can't move fully into elbow flexion, we're not thinking about the tight muscles along the backside. You're thinking about the muscles on the front side, the biceps, the brachialis, the brachioradialis. There's got to be insufficiency somewhere there. So there would be an origin insertion palpation. And a lot of times you would see strength in the muscle come back. You would find range of motion come back. So that was, that's generally what MAT is. And yeah, that's, that's what I got hired. That was back in, oh my gosh, I believe that was 2004 was my first season with the Chicago Cubs. So I was the, at the time I was the first and only guy doing MAT in Major League Baseball. So after years, years of using MAT with clients, you developed square one to address a different need. So why did you develop it? And what is that different need? That's good. That's a great question, man. So why did I develop it? And what is a different need? Okay. So why I developed it is I was, you know, I was using MAT and I was helping a lot of people with that. I personally had received help with that. And I would say that our success rate uh, and success, meaning, wow, clearly this person's stronger, there's less pain, uh, you know, better range of motion, that sort of thing. About two out of three people were getting fantastic results with MAT. So I was really happy with that because that's, that's actually quite good because there's a lot of things out there that kind of oversell and under deliver. And MAT was, and probably still is like a very elite form of helping people have better movement quality. So I'm happy with it. But why I came up with something different, it was, I would call it a happy accident. Initially, what I had is I had this one client named Alan Kamenecki and every time we work with Alan with the MAT, he actually would either get no change in functional outcomes, so no change in strength or mobility or pain, or often he would actually get worse. And it wasn't so much that MAT is hurting people. It's just that it was a really poor fit with this guy. And Alan, uh, he came in to see me about 8, 10, 12 times a year for nearly five years because after the second session I, that I did MAT on him, I told him, I said, Alan, I think we got to find something else for you. This isn't a good fit. And he just appreciated my candor and that I was being you know, honest with him. But he kept coming in to see me in desperation that he just trusted I was going to be the guy who was going to help him. And after four and a half, almost five frustrating years, it was um, – September 9th of 2008, I decided to take an opposite approach of MAT. So instead of trusting what my eyes were seeing with him, uh, and what he couldn't do is if you put him on his belly, he could not extend. So he couldn't lift his head off the ground, couldn't come up in the torso extension. His arms would be stuck in the ground. His legs were stuck in the ground. He just kind of couldn't engage that posterior chain is how I was interpreting it. And so with MAT, I'm working this whole backside for, you know, 40, 50, 60 sessions. And so what I did on September 9th of 08 was I took an opposite approach. So what I did is we kind of fed his body 
inputs that were consistent with where he already had available range of motion. So it made no sense to me. I just knew I was desperate to help this guy and taking, you know, trying to do this MAT approach with him that he was getting nowhere. So I said, hey, let's just do the opposite and see what happens. So I put him on his back and we just did some isometric contractions into the anterior chain. I had him do cervical flexion where, you know, picks his head off the table, would have him do an abdominal crunch. I have him bring his knees into his chest all actively. So we just kind of did a bunch of kind of abdominal anterior exercises, isometrics for about 45 minutes. And then the next day he calls me, informs me that all his pain is gone. He tells me that he perceives that he's standing like two or three inches taller. And he played golf that morning and he took off 11 or 12 strokes off the best round of golf he's shot since the late eighties. And I thought he was yanking my chain. I thought he was full of it. I thought he was messing with me. So that was how, that's kind of the start. That was the impetus moment. And uh, so I, what I did is I wasn't, you know, I was really just trying to help people. I was really trying to desperately help Alan because he was getting nowhere. And what I did is uh, about six weeks after that session. So we're now we're talking middle of October of 2008. Um, for the previous six weeks, I just kept referring back in my head. I couldn't get out of my head. Like, what happened with Alan? I had no idea what happened, but I just knew that it was really, really good, and I didn't understand it. So I decided um, to just start running experiments on clients. So I wrote a list down of um, just truisms, I guess you could call it, like these these movement truths. And so I had a list, you know, things like there's always, you know, during locomotion, we have this opposite arm and swing occurring, and uh, no matter what a person is doing, when we're moving, whether we're sitting or throwing a baseball or swinging a bat or playing basketball or whatever we're doing physically, our eyes are always trying to be fixed straight ahead and flat on the horizon. So I had a list of about uh, 14, 15, 16 truths that like, okay, these are things that nobody's gonna really going to argue about. These are things that we kind of know about movement. And I'm like, everything else is open to discovery. Uh, because I, what I was looking for was, Hey, how does the body, how does it function together like uh, mechanically? Like when the foot hits the ground, what should occur at the knee? What should occur at the hip and the shoulder and the T-spine? And I wanted to know what happened at all the segments. So six weeks after that impetus moment, I started getting people on my table. And all I would do is I, I was using this, and still do use a neural response muscle test. And, and instead of using that test to hyper-isolate specific weak muscles, or inhibited muscles, I just started using that test as a way to uh, uh, ascertain or to, to monitor changes in the body. So I would do is I would get a, I would get a, a failed test, and then all I started doing was mimicking ground reaction forces on the person's body at every joint in all three planes of movement in both the, uh, directions. So what that means practically is I just bend a toe down on a person, and I would check the, the neural response test and find out, did it get strong or did it stay weak? And then I would go to the other side of that person's body. And with their opposite toe, big toe, I'd bend that in a flexion and monitor what would happen. And lo and behold, there was always this opposite, uh, this opposite reaction that was occurring. So if the right foot didn't like collapsing with gravity, the left foot would like collapsing with gravity. And if the right foot liked pushing off, left foot wouldn't like kind of a push off or supination or propulsion phase. So we just started messing with this. And after, you know, a few clients, it was much almost immediately apparent that 
oh my gosh, this is gate. There's this opposite arm leg swing going on. And we kind of mapped it all out. So we have this, this triplanar, uh, you know, triplanar bi-directional, you know, six degrees of freedom is how we're designed to move in these, in these three cardinal planes of movement at every joint in the body, or I should say for most every joint in the body, some joints only move in primarily in, in, in two planes, but most joints are free to move in three planes of movement in both directions. So we have this me- neural mechanical map that I un- unwittingly discovered. And so the problem that I'm looking to solve and what square one solves it and, you know, all this experimenting became the square one system. But the, pro- the unique problem that we're solving is the brain's perception of ground reaction force at every joint of the body, three planes of movement in two directions. So we're able to find out exactly where an individual, where their brain is subconsciously registering um, like a fight or flight response when subjected to ground reaction forces. And that's a problem because as an athlete or just as a human being, um, we need to effectively be able to absorb ground reaction forces. And we also need to be, uh, you be able to use the ground as a, as a stable base. So for, for both absorbing and for propulsion, uh, how the brain perceives the joints interacting with the ground, it's absolutely massive. So we're actually able to pinpoint, isolate exactly where the athlete uh, needs to compensate, whether they know it or not, and they usually do not know that. So we're, I would say that we are really kind of getting to the source of why the brain needs to rewire itself in order to work around these ground force intolerant joint actions. So that's a mouthful, but <laughs> that was a loaded question. That was a big question. So talking about compensation, can you tell us what you mean by compensation and how does a dad or like a typical baseball coach recognize if their athlete is compensating? All right. Um, I'm going to answer the second part first. So, you know, coaches and dads and, you know, people are trying to help their athletes, whether, you know, the kids in peewees or even a pro. Uh, I'll tell you right now, we are already, all of us are compensating. So you don't even need to assess whether someone's compensating. Just it's a given because nobody has lived a perfect life. All of them, uh, you know, stressful environments, whether sleep or you had the flu or you twisted an ankle, you had garbage food. I mean, stress is just a, a part of being a human being. So by the time a, a kid is sports and he's four or five, already not had pre-birth, even stress acting on our bodies and stress is stress is what actually compromises the sensory motor signaling that is basically innate and creating these rudimentary human movement patterns. So I, I would say there's no need to assess whether your kid is compensating. He or she is compensating. I can I guarantee it because we've used square one on, you know, elite athletes. I mean, you know, High-profile athletes, I've never met a human being that doesn't compensate, even a pain-free, injury-free professional athlete, um, or down to kids in peewees or grandma that had hip replacement. Like, everybody we've ever worked on compensates. So we're going to make that assumption that 99.999999% of us compensate. Um, And then your first part of that question was our definition or our specific view on compensation. I would say that what – I've discovered is this, 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 this joint action, this triplanar joint action map, and there's 210 plus joint actions that divvy themselves up or divide very well up into 
four phases of human movement of going up and down, which is our static balance pattern, our squat pattern. And the other two phases are going right and going left. And those are what um, compromise or what comprise locomotion. So these joint actions uh, are, are created by motor output signals. And then there's sensory input signals going back to the brain from the periphery, from our joints, from the muscles, from the skin receptors. So there's a little, there's these, 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 these structures that are reporting the status of how the body is oriented in space and how is a muscle contracting, is it relaxing it at what speed is it contracting? All that stuff floods back in the nervous system. Say the sensory motor uh, feedback loop going on and it's creating joint actions that either can tolerate load or if there's something wrong in the system, there's whether the motor output signal is getting blocked, the sensory signal is getting blocked, or there's some kind of noxious stimuli saying, oh, that hurts when you do that. That'll send funky signals back to the brain. So when that gets interrupted from stress, there becomes this intolerance. The brain perceives that, hey, that, that joint action of, we'll just say, knee flexion, it it just picks up that this is an unsafe environment. I can't handle ground reaction forces right now. So I look at that position or that action as a whole in the movement map. And that's what the brain needs to work around. So it says, Oh, I can't put load on the knee right now and knee flexion. Well, no, no worries. I'll just, I'll do a little bit more hip internal rotation. I'll do a little extra knee internal rotation and I'll pick up a little extra dorsiflexion at the ankle. So the brain is, is wired to work around that hole in the map. That's what we mean when we say compensation or neural compensation. So it's just a, you know, it's, it's the best option that's available when there's less than optimal resources. So there's a missing piece. There's a hole in the map. It's the brain having to rewire itself to work around that. And that's, it's, it's depends on your perspective. That's either amazing or it's a problem, but it's, it's really both. It's amazing. And it's a problem because if, it's amazing and awesome because if we couldn't compensate, you know, we, we wouldn't walk like we do if, as soon as you had your first injury. So it, it, it enables us to keep putting out fairly efficient movement outcomes in the presence of, you know, suboptimal or limited resources. But if you're talking about being the best you can be, compensation is a, is a, is a massive problem. Because everybody's worried about you know, stability and mobility and strength. And those things are all super huge and important. But those are all downstream expressions that occur after this whole organization piece that we're talking about this motor control piece of the brain and the signals and these joint actions and you know how it's perceiving that ground so uh so i think i gave you a pretty pretty good detailed version of what i think compensation is when i say compensation i'm talking about the brain having to rewire itself around these you know these, these holes in the movement map i guess you could call it to help more coaches you recently developed a uh, product called Signal 6, which you recently just yeah. launched online. So I remember yeah. when you came to Austin in 2018 and how I went through that all those exercises and I got yeah. like a ton more external rotation in my throwing arm. So I yeah. easily developed Signal 6 and then how will athletes like me benefit from using it? So what the first was, uh, why did I develop it or how? I, I missed a, what your how? question was. On a... So how will okay, athletes how? like me benefit from it? Yeah, well, the, I'm sorry. The, the first question you asked me, Sammy, was what I, 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 well, I didn't hear you there in the beginning. Is the why you develop Signal 6? Oh, why? Okay, cool. Yeah, perfect. perfect. Okay, so why I developed Signal 6 is I, I, I developed it for 
our students because we teach the square one system to students and most of these students are rehab primarily fitness and also we have performance professionals we have strength coaches speed coaches we have a lot of personal trainers some physical therapists and a lot of these people that are are students that are in the performance world are working with groups of athletes so we have the strength coaches and we have even uh, at a at a small school like you know d2 d3 level uh, some of these, some of our students who are coaching at that level, they're serving as like the head coach and the strength coach. They're wearing many hats. So we got some students down in Asheville, North Carolina, and one was a basketball coach, another one she was a soccer coach, and they're really good at score one. And I'm like, oh, it's so cool, but dang man, these guys have like you know my basketball guy, fifth athlete out. It's like I wish I could give them a tool that isn't square one because square one is amazing as it is. It's a one-on-one situation. It's not really conducive to use it if you're the head coach and the strength coach and you're trying to, you know, run through basketball practice and do square one. Like you just can't. It's just too much going on. So for those my buddies, my my, my students that are the performance coaches, I'm like, I gotta give them something that's a little more user-friendly that they can use on groups and teams of athletes. And that's that's when Signal Six was born. Uh, I started doing Signal Six about three years ago. And what Signal Six is. It's, I would say it's, this is an underselling the heck out of it, but it's the, everybody wants to buy stuff that's quick, cheap, and easy, right? Easy to understand, easy to learn, easy to use. I get it. I mean, we're, we're all in that boat. So square one isn't quick to learn. It takes some time to develop skill. It's one-on-one. So it's a little bit of time involvement on the front end a little bit. It ends up being a time saver down the road, but it's just not, it's not great for the situation we just talked about being a team coach. So I want to put this program together. And, um, what I did is I started mapping out and just start basically, um, keeping track of where were all the joint actions, uh, where were the most common areas that we were finding issues with, whether we're working with grandma or a little kid or an elite athlete. And we started documenting like where all these issues were. And primarily what we found is most people are having signaling problems you know, between the knees and the T-spine. So the, both knees, both hips, lumbopelvic region, and T-spine. So I put together a 6 uh, you know, program to target the 30 most common joint actions that are the recipients of these, like these map holes or these poor sensory motor signaling. So there's no assessment with SIGDEX. So that's good and bad. The best part about it is, well, you don't have to learn an assessment and you don't have to waste time on assessment. Uh, but there's but it's apparently for a coach to basically attack uh, ground force reaction intolerance issues in the most common areas of the body. So they can basically run groups of, I don't care if you have five athletes or if you have 50 athletes, you can teach them this routine, incorporate as part of your warm up, and without being able to assess them. Uh, you know, you're basically playing in the areas where about 78 to 83% of that's the numbers we've found about 80% of where the issues are on, on, on the mass population. So you're basically, um, it's kind of a best of list that you're targeting as part of your warm up in between sets. And, um, it's, it's pretty amazing. So some of the benefits you can get from it is when, when you address these holes in the movement map through these isometric uh, exercises that are both part of square one and six, six, when you hit the right spot, you're reducing the brain's need to compensate. 
So you're basically showing the brain a more efficient way to generate patterns. So when you do that, we had, like you said, you, you, you noticed immediate, you know, in, uh, range of motion change at the shoulder and external rotation, super common to see in, um, increases in mobility and range of motion. We've had people that it's taken them out of pain. We do, uh, we do some grip dynamometer test, which is like a strength gains. We've seen that we use a, a tap test on, um, website what's it called it's a free it's a free app basically it's a free tool um human benchmark that's a www.humanbenchmark.com there's some cool little tools there but we use their tap test to see this reaction time deal so we've had uh athletes run through the signal six which takes less than one minute like 35 seconds a little routine uh love them run through that three four five times as far as you know beginning their warm-up and we reassess them we've seen range of motion change we've seen reaction time that pain because so the outcomes um can be pretty pretty amazing it's just it's not as precise not as accurate not as robust of a program as square one but it's it's our quick and easy version um and you know basically it's 90 minute less than a 90 minute educational process and all the practical stuff's going in there all the the routines and it's 95 bucks Plus, when people buy that, when coaches buy that, and if they end up liking it and they want to go further with this and they want to do level two, they want to learn square one, we actually give them money back. We give them 95 bucks off their square one tools. It's kind of a no-brainer if people are into you know, getting the most out of athletes and low-risk, high-reward type stuff. It's you know brain-based, force absorption type stuff. It's, if that's up your alley, it's a really cool entryway into motor control restriction work, basically. So where can people find more about you and the Signal 6 uh, resources? Okay. A um, couple different places. The two places I usually push people to with Instagram because that's where I'm most active. Um, and then I usually just, whatever gets on Instagram ends up being fed to Facebook and, and sometimes Twitter as well. Uh, but it's at Square One System. And one isn't spelled out, so it's not O-N-E, it's actually a numerical one, so it's Square One System. And then also the website is www.squareonesystem.com. Those are the best places to find us. We're also on Facebook, and we're also Twitter handle, I believe, is also at Square One System, I do believe. So the final question, if you could work with any three baseball players of all time, who would it be? Oh, Oh, man. Um, I mean, the first one that comes to mind is Babe Ruth because it's, he's Babe Ruth. I mean, he's, he's the, he's the guy. I mean, he's, he's amazing, you know? So Babe Ruth for like so many obvious reasons. I mean, here's a story from him. I mean, the guy sounds like a crazy, crazy character, you know, as well as being like an amazing pitcher and hitter. And it's, he's, he's Babe Ruth. It's like, if you said that about basketball, that'd be like Michael Jordan. So, uh, Babe Ruth, uh, that would be really cool. Um, boy, you know, as a little kid, I would read on baseball and um, Ted Williams, man. He always just, I don't know, man. It's just Ted Williams, man, like possibly the greatest hitter, you know I mean? And it depends on how you're assessing it, but Ted Williams, such a legendary hitter. And then let's just see something more modern, like, you know, last five, 10, 15 years, boy, who comes to mind? Oh man. Let me think here. Oh, all right. Just like not so modern, but uh, I want to say, um, what's uh, hello? Again, last name now. Braves start with the Cubs. Greg, hello. Maddox. 
There you go, Greg Maddox. <laughs> and here's why. As a kid, I loved him. And then when my first year with the Cubbies, I um, I was in there. And Maddox, I believe, at the time, my first year, I think he was like some kind of advisor. And he would sometimes come over and watch me work on the Cubbies player. And I offered to work on him a couple of times. And he just didn't take me up on it. But he was a super cool dude, super nice guy, super analytical, asking good questions. But, you know, he on the table. And then it was like a year or two later, he was working with uh, another team. I don't remember who he was playing or he was a coach with. Probably well, maybe the Braves or whoever it was. doesn't matter. But I'm in, I'm in the clubhouse with the Cubbies. And they're out taking me and I'm working with a couple of players. And then the staff comes back and they're like, dude, man, dog's out there. You know, man, you know. Craig Maddox is out there, and he's there talking about taking a guy over there in the basement, and he's doing this weird brain voodoo stuff. So he's basically over there, like, kind of telling like voodoo stories about me working on people. So it's funny because he was kind of like bragging on me, even though I never had him on my table. So I don't know. I thought he was a cool dude, obviously a legendary pitcher, and you know he was, he was saying some positive things about me. So I, I wish I had a shot at uh, on Maddox would have been pretty cool. Sean, thank even you so it, much for playing ball. Yeah, man. Thanks for having me, Sammy. Great talking to you, buddy. Hey, it's Sammy here. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, I would like to ask for your help. Tell me what questions you would like answered. If you could also take a moment to review the show. The algorithms are taking into account how many ratings and reviews I get. The more reviews, the more people they will show the podcast with. And don't forget to play ball, kid.